morning again. Good morning. Thank you, worship team. Just being reminded of how good we have it in Christ. Everything is through him. That he loved us, that he sustains us, he guards us, he keeps us, he provides for us. He gives us everything that we need. He saves us from ourselves, and he saves us from everything else that we could encounter in this world. Uh, I just want to say thank you for having me uh, this weekend. Uh, I'm bummed that our family couldn't be here and that I have to kind of cut things a little bit short, uh, but it's been a joy to be with you all. I've uh, been just refreshed even in the conversations that I've had, so it's been good for my soul to be here and to be reminded of just the love of God and his care for us, uh, and it's just been a joy. So hope that this is fruitful for you as well. Uh, we do have two chapters to get through here in one session, so we're going to have to do a flyby in just the four short hours I have left with you, and uh, we'll make sure to do that. But even in the conversations I've had with some of you uh, this weekend, I, we've, I've realized you know, it's very easy to miss the main thing. You know, maybe you've gone out for one thing to the store, maybe you needed milk, right? So you go to Costco thinking, okay, I need to get milk. But Costco is designed to distract you from the main thing. Right? You go through Costco and it's like, oh, that looks good. I'll try some of that. And then there's the sample ladies, and then there's the massage chairs, and then there's all of these products that you need, desperately needed, but you didn't know you needed until you got to Costco. You get all these great snacks, and you get home, and lo and behold, what do you find? You forgot the milk. You know, I think a similar thing can happen to Christ's people. You know, we want to be used to accomplish great things for God. We want him to use us, but distractions abound. There's trials. There's just the busyness of life. There's a lot of good things. There's even ministry that sometimes distracts us from the main thing. And when we finally get home, I'm wondering if we'll find out that we forgot the main thing, just like the trip to Costco. You know, what is life really all about? What are we here to do? And the answer to that question is, it was, actually Jesus would pose that question, right? What's the greatest commandment? There's 613 commandments listed. Which one do I have to do? What Jesus? What's the main thing? What does he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've been loved by God so that you would love God and love others. That's the main thing. That's what you're here to do, to love other people with the same kind of love that you've received from God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, unbelievers, anyone that's around you, your neighbor, you're to love them the way that God has loved you. That's the main thing. That's what you're here to do. And I think in Ruth chapters 3 and 4, we see just a wonderful picture that everybody is doing it. Naomi's doing it for Ruth. Ruth is doing it for Naomi. Boaz is doing it for both Naomi and Ruth. Selflessly loving others the way that God has loved them. So let's pray and then we'll look at this. Father, we are so thankful for your love. Poured out on us through Christ. Lord, you created us to enjoy you and to live for you. And we all felt that we had a better idea of what a life of enjoyment and fulfillment would look like. And so we decided to follow ourselves and not you. And yet you were so, so gracious to send Christ, to rescue us from ourselves, to remind us that we have a good and wise and sovereign God who knows exactly what we need 
who is all-loving. And even though we threw that relationship away, you restored it to us in Christ. And now we get to love people with that same kind of love. That's what we're here to do. That's why we just don't get saved and go right to heaven. We get saved and stay here so that we can love people the way that you've loved us. So encourage us with this, these examples that we see. Christ-like love seen even before Christ came in all these examples we have in the book of Ruth. Encourage us, stir us, speak to us. We want to hear your voice through your word. We pray this in Christ's name. So just recapping Ruth chapter 1, we're faced with that question, whose dreams do we want? Right? Who do you want to design your life? Do you want to design it yourself? Or do you want to leave that to a God who is infinitely wise and good and loving and sovereign? And if we give up control of our life to him, he will abundantly provide everything that we need, and he will powerfully use us to make an eternal impact in the world. Now, how do we do that? How do we seek first his kingdom in that way? We do it the same way that he does it with us, by loving other people the way that he has loved us. That's how you make an eternal impact. You love people the way that Christ has loved you. And we see that here in Ruth chapter 3. Let's look at this. We have three portraits, I think, of selfless love in Ruth chapter 3. First is Naomi. Verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, in one sense, I mean, that question doesn't really make any sense. You know, Naomi is her mother-in-law, Ruth is her daughter-in-law, and she says, well, isn't it right for me to seek security and rest for you? Like, no, it's not, right? What would be right for Ruth if she wanted security and rest? She should have gone back home. Like, it would be right for her mother and her father to seek rest for her, but Naomi takes it on herself to seek rest and security for Ruth. Now, it's interesting because if you go back to Ruth chapter 1, when Ruth is, where Naomi is trying to push Ruth away, you know, she asked the question, you know, you should go back to your family that you may find rest. Verse 9 of chapter 1, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. And now Naomi in chapter 3 is saying, isn't it right for me to find rest? For you. Ultimately, it's the Lord that's going to provide rest, but Naomi says, hey, why don't I take part in what the Lord is going to do? You know, Naomi actively seeks to love Ruth. You know, she just prayed it in chapter 1, but in chapter 3 she says, you know what, I can be a part of answering that prayer. You know, it's great to pray for the needs of people, but if you can actually answer the very prayer that you're praying for people, you should do that. You should seek to be used by God in that way. So when you hear the needs of others, how do you respond? I think some of us are like, well, you know, we'll, we'll pray about it. We'll pray that God would provide this. Oh, well, I'm sure someone else will help out. Well, I've got a lot going on myself, you know, so I can't love someone else until, you know, I'm well taken care of. But that's not Naomi's attitude anymore. Naomi says, I can do this. I can play a part in finding rest for my daughter. And so she does it. It's a good encouragement to us to sometimes... Seek to be the own answer to your prayers. 
You know, it's good to pray, but even better if you have the means to help someone who's in need. You know, don't just pray like, oh, Lord, please provide so-and-so with money so he can pay his rent. If you have the money, why don't you give them his, give him the money so that he can pay his rent? You know, seek to be an answer to your own prayers. Again, this is cutting against this idea of sort of just let go and let God with let me be used by God to love people the way that he has loved me. Now, Naomi's also very intentional about this plan. She doesn't just say, like, let me go find it and let God do it. She comes up with a plan. Who's her plan? Boaz is her plan to find rest for her daughter. Look at verse 2 in chapter 3. Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be, when he lies down, that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you should do. So Naomi's thinking, how do I solve this problem? How do I find rest for my daughter? Well, hey, there's a relative that could provide everything that she needs. So she hatches up this plan. Interesting plan for sure, right? What does she say? Well, why don't you go wash, you know, and anoint yourself, put on your best clothes. You know, so ladies, if you want to get a man, it's like you got to shower, you know, you got to find some new clothes, go down, get a new wardrobe. Is that what she's saying? That's not what she's saying, right? Really what she's saying is, up until this point, it's only been a few months since they came back from Moab. Ruth has probably been in her mourning clothes, the clothes associated with her mourning the death of her husband up until this point. And so what Naomi is saying is, it's the time of mourning is over. You know, put back on your normal clothes. The word best there, it actually isn't in Hebrew, the, you know, put on your best clothes. It's really put on a poncho, kind of this outer cloak, right? I don't think you're going to attract many men by putting on, you know, a poncho uh, in that case. But what essentially she's saying is, let Boaz know that the time of mourning is over and that you're ready to be married. That's what Naomi is saying. And so then she says, you know, you need to go to the threshing floor. You need to wait until he's asleep. You need to lie down at his feet and then see what happens after that. So what's going on here? Well, it's important to know when you're studying scripture that some things are prescriptive, right? They're telling you what to do, prescribing a way that you should do things. And then some things are descriptive. It's merely just telling you what happened, not telling you that you should do that or shouldn't do that, right? Like when Gideon lays the fleece, you know, he's saying, make this wet and that wet and this dry and all that kind of stuff. That's just descriptive. It's not saying that you should go out and do that. It's just saying this is what Gideon did. So is this, essentially it's a marriage proposal is what Naomi is describing. Is this something that's prescriptive or descriptive? I think this is obviously prescriptive. This is the way that God designed marriage proposals to work. This is how we should be doing it. So I talked it over with the elders. And so tonight at the campfire, any single man, we're going to have them lie around the campfire and they're going to put a blanket over their legs. And any eligible ladies, if you're interested in any of the men that are lying around the campfire, you'll simply go down and lie down right at their feet and uncover their feet, and then we'll see what God will do. 
This is actually part of uh, my launching of a new Christian dating app that I'm trying to do. It's uh, called Boaz's Feet. And so they'll just be eligible bachelors. You can kind of swipe through and you can uncover their feet if you're interested in, in dating any of them. Now, in one sense, this is a pretty risky maneuver for Naomi to suggest. I mean, how many things could go wrong in the time of Judges with a young widow foreigner lying down at the foot of a very influential man? Now, it's less risky in one sense because they know Boaz, and Boaz is a man of character. But this is very forward. This is Naomi telling Ruth, basically, you propose to him. But it's an act of selfless love, I think, on the part of Naomi. She wants Ruth to be taken care of. And so she's willing to even go through this very risky situation to try to secure security for her daughter-in-law. So that's the first picture of love. We see that Naomi seeks to be an answer to her own prayer, and she's very intentional about planning out how this can happen. And then we see the next example of selfless love in Ruth, who submits to this plan. Look at verses 6 through 9. So, so verse 5, she said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she submits to this risky plan. Verse 6, so she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk with his heart, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, and she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. So again, we see Ruth's selfless love. She's doing everything Naomi said. She goes and does exactly as Naomi described. She waits for Boaz. He goes. He has a long, hard day at work. He has a good meal. It doesn't mean when it says he drank and he got married, it doesn't mean he got drunk. It just means he drank, had a drink and he was feeling good, right? So he's not drunk, but he's lying down after a hard day's work, and she does exactly what Naomi says. She lies down at his feet and uncovers him. Then in verse 8, you sort of get the, the story from Boaz's perspective, right? I mean, imagine yourself lying down. You're tired. You go to sleep. And then all of a sudden, you know, you feel this cool breeze over your legs. You're like, didn't I, wasn't I wearing a blanket? And so you reach down, and then instead of finding a blanket down there, you find, you know, you touch a woman's head of hair, and you're like, what is this? But what does Ruth say? She, she says, I am your maid. Spread your covering over your maid because you are a close relative. So here's Ruth. This is also selfless love on the part of Ruth. First, she says, spread your covering over your maid. Now, that word covering is the same word for wing. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is where Boaz is amazed at all that Ruth has already done. He says, all that you've done, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, all that you've done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been reported to me, and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. What does Boaz pray? May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. 
And then Ruth tells Boaz, spread your wings over me. Basically, Boaz, answer your own prayer. You prayed that the Lord would take care of me because I came under his wings. You cover me with your wings. You be the answer to your own prayer. Now, why does she do it? It says, for you are a close relative. So ultimately, who is Ruth trying to serve in marrying Boaz? Naomi. She's not seeking to serve herself. Does she like Boaz? Like, I'm sure she does. But Boaz is probably like 30 or 40 years older than she is. But she wants to secure a son for Naomi. So when Ruth does this, she's not thinking about herself. Like, I really want to get a husband. I really want to have kids. I really want to secure my future. When she does this, she's thinking, I want to provide for Naomi. That's her heart. If Boaz marries Ruth and they have children, that child, that child would be considered Naomi's child, not her own. Ruth is selflessly loving Naomi by proposing to Boaz. And what's Boaz's response to this unorthodox proposal? Verse 10. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Boaz is so encouraged by Ruth's selfless love. Why does he praise her? Because this last act of kindness is even better than the first. What was the first act of kindness? After the death of her husband, she clings to Naomi. That's her first kindness was to Naomi. And her second kindness is this, that you're willing to marry me. You could have gone after younger men that weren't relatives of Naomi, but you want to marry me to raise up a child for her. And this act of kindness is even greater than the first that you did. Selfless love is what attracted Boaz to Ruth in the first place, right? The first act of kindness he noticed, and even more so now. And so he calms her fears. He calls her my daughter twice. Basically, don't be afraid. I'm going to make sure that both of you are okay. He says, I'll do whatever you ask. Which is funny because Naomi said, go do this, lie down at his feet, and then do whatever he says. And he says to her, I'll do whatever you want. Why does he do that? He says this, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Everyone knows, everyone in the city knows that you are a woman of excellence. How long has Ruth been in that city? Like a few months, maybe three or four months. Everyone knows that you are a woman of excellence. How did she get that reputation? By tweeting about it? Posting on Insta? No. Did she seek fame or popularity? Nope. Did she seek to influence the most important people? No. What did she do? She loved a widow who nobody else could take care of, that would take care of. 
And everyone in four months, because she did that, because she loved one person who was in a vulnerable situation, everyone in four months knows this is a woman of excellence. This is what an excellent woman does. That's the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 to describe a woman of excellence who can find. And actually, in your Hebrew Bible, Ruth comes right after Proverbs. So you read Proverbs 31 in the Hebrew Bible, and you get this description of a woman of excellence, and the very next book you would read is the book of Ruth. She is the woman of excellence that's described in Proverbs 31, because she doesn't seek fame and popularity. She seeks to selflessly love those around her. That is a woman of excellence. Now, I mean, imagine Ruth hearing those words from Boaz. You know, I spent the last four months of my life, after the death of my husband, caring for this person who no one else would care for. I'm assuming that I'm just a nobody. And yet Boaz says, no, 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 no. Everyone knows you're a woman of excellence. She went from foreign scavenger to noble woman. From rummaging around in the garbage, essentially, to now the highest status in God's eyes. In four months by selflessly loving someone else. But that's not the last picture of selfless love we see, because we see Boaz, in his response, also exhibiting selfless love. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now it is true, this is Boaz's words, I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. I mean, Ruth must have just, her heart must have just dropped, like, when she heard these words. Like, everything's working out perfectly. He's going to do whatever I ask. You know, we're going to get married. It's going to be great. And then he says, I am a close relative, but there's actually a closer one. But verse 13, remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. We should see that this is an example of selfless just integrity and love, again, on the part of Boaz. It would be very easy for him to just say, like, all right, let's do it. Let's get married. Let's do the whole thing, right? And we can move on. But he says, no, there's actually, there's a quarter that these things have to happen. And I'm going to submit to even God's design for this, if that's how he wants to do it. You know, and it also shows that he loves without compulsion because he's not the closest relative. He has no legal reason to marry Ruth. And yet he's wanting to do it even though he's not the closest relative. And he has great integrity because he doesn't want to manipulate the situation to just get what he wants. And so what, ha what happens? Verse 14, So she lay at his feet until morning, and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So again, he's just trying to protect her integrity. Nothing happened. And so let's protect her reputation. Verse 15, again he said, give me the cloak that is laid on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and went into the city. When she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. She said, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. 
Then she said, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has settled it today. And so Boaz wants to continue to protect her. He's protecting her integrity. He's also continuing to provide for her. He gives her another six measures of barley, which could be up to 50 to 100 pounds. So, I mean, Ruth, through all that harvesting and reaping and carrying, it's like she must be ripped at this point. This is like better than CrossFit that she's in. And then he goes to the city. I think that's what really it should be saying, that he goes into the city then to take care of this. And then Ruth gets to go home and tell Naomi everything that happened. And again, imagine her, it's like, how did it go? And she's, you know, carrying in 60 pounds again of barley and throwing it on the floor. It's like, I think it went pretty well. He gave me all of this, right? It's not quite an engagement ring, but then Boaz didn't have time to go to Jared. And so this is how he's doing it. He's wanting to show, like, I'm going to provide for you. And he tells Ruth to tell Naomi that he didn't want her to go empty-handed. I mean, think back to the end of chapter 1. What did Naomi say? That I went out full and the Lord brought me back empty. And Boaz wants Ruth to tell her, you're not going to be empty anymore. I am going to provide for you. I am going to take care of you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. And those are Ruth's last words in the book of Ruth, that she's assuring Naomi that she's not going to be empty anymore. Then Naomi says, you know, let's see what God will do. And those are actually Naomi's last words in the story as well. So Naomi went from the end of chapter 1 saying, God is my enemy, to the end of chapter 3, let's see what God does with, I think, happy expectation that everything's going to work out just the way that God wants. And those are the last words that we see from Ruth and Naomi through the end of the book of Ruth. And so we see selfless love is on display in all three places, right? How many times could this story have fallen apart? What if Ruth didn't go with Naomi? What if Ruth didn't want to go looking for grain? What if Boaz didn't want to supply for Ruth and Naomi? And yet every step along the way, people that were motivated by the love of God sought to love the way that he loves. And in the end, it's bringing about Christ. So secondly, spend your life for Christ because he redeems even the most broken dreams. We're to seek his fame, not our own. And let's look into chapter 4. We see that there's a, a care, another person here that comes up who's seeking his own name in contrast to everyone else who's looking out for the interests of others. Verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten, of the, ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I, I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And this friend said, I will redeem it. So again, we see God is completely in control, right? Boaz goes to the gate, and wouldn't you know it, just as he goes to the gate to sit in front of all the elders, the very person 
the nearest relative just happens to be walking by at the very same time, right? Nothing chance about it. It's interesting, what does Boaz call him? He calls him friend, it says in the NASB, but really this is like a Hebrew, you know, in Hebrew it's Almoni Poloni, which is sort of like Mr. So-and-so, or like Mr. What's-His-Name, John Doe, basically is the idea. Now Boaz obviously knows his name, and he would have greeted him, hello, whatever his name is. But the writer of Ruth intentionally leaves out this person's name. And we're going to see why, because he's concerned about his name and his reputation. And in the end, his name doesn't even get recorded in the book of Ruth. And Boaz, who cares more about the name of Elimelech, he gets all the honor and the glory from that. So, Boaz goes up to Mr. What's-His-Name, Mr. So-and-So, and he says, hey, you know, you have a right to this land, you should buy it, and then, it, but if you don't want to, then I will. So the guy says, sure, I'll buy it. Yeah, why not? Now, at first it seems a little bit odd, right? I thought Naomi and Ruth were poor. How is it they have this valuable piece of land? Why wouldn't they have sold it earlier? You know, is this like someone begging on the street and then they jump in their Mercedes and drive away? No, that's not really what's going on. What probably happened is that when times were tough, Elimelech sort of leased out the land and let other people use it. And at that point, he wasn't able to purchase it back for himself, right? Kind of like a pawn shop. You know, it's like you can give something to the pawn shop, They'll give you money, and if you can buy it back in a certain amount of time, then you keep it. But if not, then they'll sell it, and it's theirs. So I think that's kind of what's going on. So he's saying, you know, hey, there's this land. Why don't you buy it? And Mr. So-and-so is thinking, like, yeah, that's perfect. I'll buy it. You know, I'll buy it because then Naomi will die, and there's no heir, and so then I'll get all this land to myself. That's what he's concerned about. But there's a catch. Verse 5. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention, Boaz says in verse 5, On the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. There's always the fine print, right? This was a deal that was too good to be true. In verse 6, the closest relative said, I can't redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Right, so what's he saying? Mr. So-and-so, right? Mr. What's-his-name? We don't even know his name. He's thinking, if I marry Ruth, and I raise up people for Elimelech, then those sons will be part of my inheritance, but it won't continue in my family because they're technically Elimelech's family. So if I marry Ruth, I lose out. So I'm not going to do that. I don't want to jeopardize my future. I don't want to jeopardize my family name. So forget it. You can have the land. You can raise up children for Elimelech. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption in exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative of Boaz said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. So the man who was very concerned about his name and his inheritance walks off the pages of history, never to be heard from again, limping along with only one sandal on him. And the person who cared not for his name at all, Boaz, and cared more for the name of Elimelech is recorded for everyone to see for the rest 
of history being a key component of how we get from Abraham all the way down to the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Seek Christ's fame, not your own. And when you spend your life for Christ, you can trust that even your most broken dreams will be redeemed. And now we just get the start of all of the happy endings. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and Malin. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malin, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance so that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. All the people who are in the court and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz gets to make the happy announcement. I will purchase this land. I will take Ruth to be my wife. I will raise up the name of the deceased in the place of this other relative. And then the people and the elders pray for them. They pray this amazing prayer that may, them be, may they be like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built the house of Israel. Give Ruth a place with the most influential people of Israel. Ruth who? Ruth the Moabitess. Make her like Rachel and Leah who built the house of Israel. They want Boaz to be famous. May you prosper in Ephrathah and become famous in Bethlehem. Has Boaz become famous? You better believe it. Boaz brought about David and the son of David into the world. Boaz is God's instrument of bringing salvation into the world. They want God to use Boaz to continue Judah's royal lineage. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. May there be a future king that comes from you. You know, only Christ can redeem your broken dreams and your trials like this. And it's interesting, think about the women in this prayer. Think about the people that are mentioned. Think about the kinds of situations that God used to accomplish his eternal purposes. Right? They mentioned Leah. Who's Leah? She was unwanted. Right? She was given by her father to Jacob, who wanted to marry her sister Rachel as a trick. Leah wasn't wanted. And yet she finds herself as one of the most influential women in Israel's history. God richly blessed her by allowing her to give birth to half the 12 tribes of Israel, including Judah. Christ came through Leah, who was an unwanted wife. Then they say Tamar, the Can who's a Canaanite, who she was taken advantage of. She was also a foreigner like Ruth. She was also a widow like Ruth. Her deceased husband's brother refused to marry her and provide an heir, so she ended up having to trick her father-in-law into providing an heir for her. And that's where Perez comes from. 
And Christ came through Tamar, who was taken advantage of. And then, of course, you have Ruth herself. Ruth has been described time and time again as what? The Moabitess. You know, the story of Ruth sounds, in a lot of ways, like the story of Lot and his daughters. All that language in chapter 3 about having him, after he eats and he's had a drink and he lays down, you should go lie down at his feet. All of the language there is very reminiscent of when Lot had his daughters, right? And what did his daughters do? They got him drunk, and then they, you know, ended up having kids through their father. That's where Moab came from. That's where the Moabites came from. This is, that's Ruth's past. It's an incestuous past of immorality, anything but integrity and selfishness, anything but love. And yet God's now redeeming that story through Ruth. This woman who has this horrible past is now being used by God to bring Christ into the world. Ruth's story now is one of purity, integrity, and eternal redemption for the world. A foreign beggar, now a woman of excellence. Broken dreams, now the glory of Christ. You know, I don't know how broken your story is. Maybe you were unwanted. Maybe you've been taken advantage of. Maybe you have just a crazy past. But God can redeem any situation. And he can redeem it in ways that are way beyond your wildest imagination. It's not just that he provided a little bit of healing for, Mo, for Ruth or for Naomi. No, no, no. He used them to bring Christ into the world. Whatever your background is, God can use it to accomplish great things for Christ. He can redeem any situation. So spend your life for him. Don't seek your own fame. Don't be a Mr. What's-His-Name. Don't spend your life on yourself. If you do, all your trials and disappointments, they'll define you and devastate you. But if you give all those things to Christ, he will use you in ways that you never imagined and bear fruit through you that you never thought was possible. And that's what we see in these last verses. Spend your life for Christ because his dreams abundantly satisfy. Look at verses 13 to 15. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the, woman said to, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today. May his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. I mean, this is an amazing blessing. The woman who at the end of chapter one, they were just hearing about how horrible God had been. How bitter Naomi was. Now they get to say, he's not been bitter, or he's not been unkind. He's not been evil towards you. He's not your enemy. You find yourself holding in your arms again a baby. The same word that was used in chapter 1, verse 5, when it says she was bereft of her babies, her sons. Now she finds herself again with a son. And may his name become famous 
in Israel. And it is. He is David's grandfather and the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus Christ. His name has become great. Praise God for providing Ruth. It's amazing that statement in verse 15. Your daughter-in-law who loves you. I mean, the women still can't get over the fact that this is a daughter-in-law who did this. It's not your daughter. It's a daughter-in-law loved you like this. She gave up everything to love Naomi. She fulfilled the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And then they say that Ruth, your daughter-in-law who loves you, is better to you than seven sons. A son in Israel was a big deal. Seven sons would be unthinkable. And they're saying that even if you had seven the most successful sons that you could ever imagine, right? Everyone is godly. Everyone's like a doctor or a lawyer or a missionary or a pastor. Think of how, whatever son you could think of that would be perfect. Think of seven of those. And Ruth, your daughter-in-law, is better than seven sons. I mean, it's amazing. God provided for her something better than she would have ever imagined. Better than seven sons. Again, how is Ruth better than seven sons? Not because of a powerful position. Not because of a prestigious job. Why is she better than seven sons? What do they say? The daughter-in-law who loves you. She loved you. She selflessly loved you the way that God loved her. And she is more valuable then than seven sons. You know, Naomi hated God. God didn't have to give her Ruth. God didn't have to work in Ruth's heart to make her want to stay, but he did. And he gave her a gift that far exceeded her expectations. Does God have better plans for your life than you do? Absolutely. His plans are way better than yours. He knows how to abundantly satisfy even after it seems like all hope is lost. He will give you way more than you could ever dream up on your own. And then Naomi gets to hold her grandson. Verse 16. Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. What an amazing ending. A son has been born to Naomi. She said she was empty. She said she had nothing. God provides for her a daughter-in-law who loved her and raised up a son for her. And this son would not just be a son. This would be the grandfather, great-grandmother of a king. And not just any king, but the one who would lead eventually to the king of kings. God knows how to write a better story with your life than you do. He knows how to accomplish way more for the cause of Christ than you do. Trust him. Are God's plans better than your plans? I mean, could you devise a more satisfying and joyful experience than these two women must have felt at this moment? Even after all the loss, even after all the hard times, as they would never want to go through that again, but I bet they don't regret it at all in this moment, knowing what God had done, even through this desperate situation. 
Spend your life for Christ, and he will give you joy and satisfaction even through all the broken dreams and trials and whatever happens. He'll use your life. And he'll actually use it beyond your wildest dreams. In verses 18 to 22, you have the grand finale, a genealogy. And this is sort of the first post-credit scene, I think, that was ever created. Uh, after the kind of the curtain closes in verse 17, and now you have this genealogy in 18. Now, genealogies normally, there's a place where you kind of glaze over in your Bible reading, and you just sort of skip through them, like, okay, let's get on to something more exciting. But this genealogy is important. This genealogy really is the point of this whole story. This is where everything has been heading. You need to understand that this wasn't just a happy ending to a couple of ladies at this one point in time. Now, this was how God was bringing forth the son, his son into the world. The son of David, the seed of Abraham. This is how it happened. This is a story about how that happened. Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. It's a strange way to end a book, but really it's showing that our perspective is really limited by our lifetime. And this is God's way of showing that God has things he's doing in your life that will affect eternity. Way beyond after you go from this life. This genealogy is meant to open your eyes to see that God can use one ordinary life to accomplish eternal things, just like he did with Ruth and Naomi. God uses ordinary people with all their trials and their broken dreams and can produce extraordinary results that last for eternity, for all eternity. If God can use Ruth and Boaz and Naomi in the days of Judges to bring forth Christ, I think he can use me and you in the trying times when we're living to bring about great results for Christ as well. The genealogy of Christ, again, when you think about it, who's in there? Leah, the unwanted. Tamar, the taken advantage of. If you read Matthew chapter 1, one of Boaz's mother or great-grandmother, grandmother or great-grandmother, is Rahab, a prostitute. God uses ordinary people. God uses people with broken paths to accomplish great purposes. Christ can use you. Your life can matter for eternity if you turn it over to him. He can forgive you and redeem you, and he'll use your life to impact generations of lives. That should be a great encouragement to us. And how do we do it? How does God use an ordinary life to impact eternity the same way he did with Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz? People who have been loved by God, that want to love others like God, and he can use it to impact eternity. You know, we read earlier in Philippians chapter 2, we see that's exactly what Christ did. Christ came to humbly and selflessly love others. And he calls us to do the very same thing, right? Chapter 2 of Philippians verse 1, if you have any encouragement from his love, this is how you should live. The same way that he loved you, you get to love other people and God will use it to accomplish eternal things. Selfless love is what we should be all about. God loved us, and we get to love other people with the same kind of love. Selfless love should characterize your marriage, 
Do you actively seek your spouse's well-being? Do you actively seek it even when that spouse may not be actively seeking your well-being? But do you do it anyway because that's the way that God has loved you? Selfish love should characterize your friendships. Do you only love those who love you? The Gentiles do that. Can you selflessly love people that don't love you back? If you do that, God can use it, right? That's what Ruth did. Naomi wasn't loving Ruth back. Ruth, Naomi wasn't saying like, oh, would you please come with me? I so appreciate it. I'm so thankful for you. No, she was doing everything to push her away, and Ruth loved her with the same kind of love that God had shown her. Selfish love should characterize all your relationships with unbelievers. Can you love people who won't treat you well? It's what Christ did for you, and it's what you get to do for others. Don't think of this as like a rule that you have to do. Think of it as a privilege. That I get to love people with the same kind of love that God has shown me, and God can use it to impact eternity. Because when you love like he loves, people see him, and lives can be changed. And so let's selflessly love. Spend our life for Christ by selflessly loving other people the way that he has loved us. Let's pray. Father, we are just amazed that you could use ordinary lives in very difficult times to bring about Christ into the world. And that's an encouragement for us because we're just ordinary people, nothing special about us. Not many of us are wise or influential or hold positions of high prominence in the world around us. We, like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, we live in difficult times, they're dark. There doesn't seem to be a lot of love, of love of God around. People definitely seem to be doing what is right in their own eyes. And if you can use three people like that, three ordinary people who just want to love people the way that you've loved them, then you can use us. And just like you use them to produce eternal results, you'll use us to produce eternal results for you. Our lives can count for something way beyond this life. They can count for all eternity. So Lord, help us to love. Maybe it's just one person, like Ruth, just loving her mother-in-law, and yet you used it to shape eternity. Help us love the people around us. Help us to love our neighbor as ourself. And if we do that, spurred on, encouraged, doing it out of the overflow of our love for you, you can do incredible things. Lord, bear great fruit through us. Help us be people that just love every day, just ordinary people around us, May we love them with the love of Christ, and may we see you do great things. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.